Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the NeuroDive podcast. I'm once again delighted to be joined. Well, I say once again, I'm once again delighted because I'm always delighted to be joined by a guest, but I'm particularly delighted today to be joined by Kieran Rose, uh, an autistic advocate. Now, Kieran, are you autistic yourself? I am, yeah. Well, I was so- diagnosed about 20 years ago. Okay. Because I guess if you said autistic advocate, you could think of someone that was an advocate for autistic people, but autistic advocate covers both bases there. Um, (laughs) And published author. Mm -hmm. And one of those people that I often find when when I do these podcasts, when I start researching all the things they've done, have done bloody loads of things. So (laughs) we'll go through all of those throughout the course of the podcast, hopefully. But... um, Kieran, I don't know if you have any clue who I am or what I do. So <laughs> I don't know if you need to. You, do you need to know that? I don't mind explaining. I know it. that you have a wonderful podcast and that you've interviewed some <laughs> wonderful people. That, 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 that's about as far as it goes. Absolutely fine. Um, well, just so you know, um, I, I've worked uh, with autistic children and young people mainly uh, for a decade or so in various different roles. Um, and then over the last, since about 2013, working more with parents and families. Um, and for me, I guess like everybody, when lockdown happened, things changed in lots of ways. Um, mm. Started going more down the online route, uh, webinars. Um, you know, I was already delivering training, but going down webinars, uh, starting a podcast. And I think... For me, one of the biggest things that changed was actually talking more to autistic adults and autistic researchers, people like Dr. Chloe Farahar, Harry Thompson, uh, Tigger Pritchard. And it really opened my eyes to a different way of practicing what I would call support um, and actually how it made me reflect back on how there were times in the past as a non-autistic person trying to support an autistic person, I probably got it very wrong, Um, you know, with the right intention, but actually, you know, misinformation that was perhaps the more common parlance of the time. Um, And one of the, one of the pieces that kind of helped, you know, fit into that, um, I don't want to use the term puzzle because that's not a good good term to use um but you know one of the things that fitted in for me was your uh research paper um which again i think chloe sort of first made me aware of which was the conceptual analysis of autistic masking yeah um and i mean i'll I'll let you it'd be great if you could kind of explain that Mm -hmm. research um in case any of the listeners haven't heard of it or, or come across it and summarize it as best you can Sure. Um, but, you know, for me, I guess it, it just, again, was another affirmation that actually there's still a lot to address. You know, there's still a lot of change to happen to truly make autistic people you know, and children and young people feel that they can be part of whatever we want to consider society to be, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, wonderful to get you on here. I've waffled an awful lot already. Uh, <laughs> okay. but yeah. If you can just like maybe tell the listeners <clears throat> about that, that paper and what that kind of was about. And, you know, sure. Uh, I, I mean, um, actually, if I can 
just comment on what you just said like um about being a, a practitioner and a professional and i'm never someone who judges um because we can only use the tools that we have to hand it's a saying that i repeat all the time it's like a little mantra for me particularly when i'm kind of supporting professionals and parents um because you can you, the information that you've got is the information that you've got if there's no more available or you can't readily find more information and support then you've got to do the best with what you've got and that comes back to what you were what you were how you were trained and what you were trained in and all of those things many things which we know now historically are very very flawed and very biased as well um and actually the paper that amy and i wrote fits into that nicely because for the last hundred years of um, autism history, as long as autism has been researched as a thing, um, autistic people have historically been excluded from that narrative, which never, I can never get my head around that really. You know, it's like, let, let's, let's look at all these people and never actually talk to them properly. <laughs> um, it never it made sense. It doesn't make lots of sense. It no. doesn't really, does it? And yet it's still happening every day. It's still happening all around us. It's still the predominant narrative. Um so autistic masking is, um, I'm sure um, many people listening to this will recognize what that is. It, it's basically um, when autistic people project a different version of themselves. And I look at that narrative a little bit differently to the common narrative, the mainstream narrative that's out there, out there around masking, because that mainstream narrative is that we're doing it to fit in. We're doing it to appear less autistic and doing it to appear more neurotypical. And all of that implies that there's a choice behind it, that we're choosing to not be ourselves for whatever reason. Um, so when Amy and I wrote the paper, we really wanted to kind of um, put a stop to that narrative and make people, especially the people in academia and research, sit up and recognize that there's this whole sub-narrative that causes autistic masking. And it's not choice, it's actually trauma and stigma and marginalization that causes us to feel unsafe and so over time developmentally we recognize these things on a kind of unconscious level and a conscious level and do make some active choices but also there's an unconscious changing behavior that occurs when we're around people that are unsafe or in environments that are unsafe and that can happen in different degrees for different autistic people but the extreme of it is that many people who get late diagnosed or late recognized that they're autistic so people in their 30s 40s 50s 60s onwards there becomes a fear factor around recognizing that they're autistic because commonly what goes with that is an episode of autistic burnout where you are less able to mask it's, it's but many people don't realize they have been masking because it's become this unconscious thing um so when that mask becomes unsustainable and they start acting more autistically they're more natural selves that they don't recognize as their natural self um there's a fear factor there because their whole identity has been suppressed across their lifespan and there's a fear that there's a void or there's this vacuum or this chasm underneath this persona that they've been projecting and they don't know who they are and it's really terrifying for a lot of people and it's scary to me how unrecognized that narrative is, not only in the masking narrative, but also in the fact that masking isn't recognized by lots of professionals, particularly in education, um, that this is a thing that is happening to autistic children and, and autistic youths and autistic young adults and autistic adults and autistic elders, but people don't seem to realize that it is or don't want to realize that it is. I think it's... I mean, this is just my take on it, but it, it's quite confronting, I think, because it it's 
you know, the, the previous or the sort of more mainstream idea of, of um, masking kind of absolves us, the non-autistic people of responsibility, yeah. you know, we, well, I mean, well, don't do it then, you know, is it, it, but actually the, the, again, the thing that struck me about the, the research you'd done was, was that, um, you know, it, it, the idea of being traumatized into yeah. putting on a, a you know I guess a trauma response mask uh, is is really important because there's again, you know, my, my take on it was often that it the the things that we take for granted as non-autistic people actually can be quite traumatizing for some of our autistic children and young people and until we kind of accept that there's not going to be any attention paid to those things yeah um and again as you know and i really appreciate what you're saying about the you can only work with what you've got um but there is there's a i guess there's a counter argument that some of the approaches that are used to look at conformity it's a conformity of function so they're trying to get the person more what we would consider functional and i guess it's it's i was interested in what where the line is there because you know say you're using i don't know um, what would be one of those traditional methods something like a speech and language approach to help someone use verbal communication mm -hmm. if they choose um how how do you think you balance that against i guess giving someone the idea that they've got to conform otherwise they'll be different and isolated yeah well I, actually there was a, a conversation on twitter about this but with occupational therapists yesterday okay um and somebody had said should we be not looking at helping people to become independent but should we be looking at helping people to become autonomous and not many people know the difference between those two things and independence in this context was you know helping people to do things on their own where in actual fact autonomy is helping people have the choice as to whether they do things on their own or whether they need or want support to do things and there's a there's a there's a kind of nuance between those two things but it's a very powerful nuance and it, it's anything speech and language ot any any kind of therapy um I always consult and advise that they should be built around what I call the four A's, which are, I've got them written down next to me because I always forget them. Um, it's autonomy, agency, acceptance, and authenticity. So if you are engendering those things in the support that you're giving, then you are naturally going to have someone who is empowered to make choices to understand themselves in order that they can make informed choices about what they want and need. And also that's then going to lead to them not to mask, not to hide who they are. So, or not to have to feel like they walk into a room and they have to meet the needs of everybody else in the room, which is another part of the masking narrative. So it's, it's a very kind of confrontational thing to say for a lot of professionals, because that's, there's, there's inherent ableism in most kind of disability related support. Uh, professions in OT in speech and language because speech and language itself is framed around speech and talking and you know we know from the autistic community that speech actually isn't 
always the main form of communication. Actually, probably it's the less main form of communication. You know, text and sign and AAC. And there are so many different ways that we can communicate. And actually, when you look at communication as a bigger picture, speech only makes up a tiny part of it anyway. But it's because it's that the in-your-face type of communication that's there all present all the time. We think it's the be-all and end-all, and it isn't at all. So, you know, it's around stepping back and looking at human experience as a much bigger thing than this very narrow, very binary thing that we've created and set up and, and that we kind of idolize and have put up on a platform that we have to be in order to be a good human. We have to exist in this particular way. And that's rubbish. It's absolute rubbish. And it's, which is where neurodiversity really stems from. And that whole concept of recognizing that, you know, there is, there is diversity in every species of the planet, whether it's animals, whether it's humans, whether it's plants, you know, every species has subspecies and acts in different ways and does different things, does different things differently. So why has humanity got to do everything in a very binary kind of way? It's a very hubristic ideal that there's no diversity amongst humans um, when there clearly is. And it, it, it's, I think, reinforcing those things amongst kind of professionals who are working in different fields and working with people of all different types, um, whether that's autistic people, whether that's different neurodivergencies, whether that's disabilities in different ways and things, because it's become too easy to build a framework around a type of person and then expect that person to adhere to that framework. And when they don't adhere to that framework, it then becomes problematic and it's the person that's the problem and not the framework. And, and that's the bit that we need to really pull the rug out from under and really start to dissect and pull to pieces. It's like I don't know if I've answered that. your question or if I've just waffled off. On no, you, you, I, you might have done, but you've given me about <laughs> 10 other ones. So that's all good. Um, I, yeah, I was saying this. Uh, I did a um, workshop with Harry Thompson the other week around the fireside, very, uh, what's the word? Ancestral. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, I was kind of saying that it, it sort of strikes me that the, the or you know why is that why is it that the assumption is if a group of people aren't working or functioning as we see it in a society like the main of a society we try and enforce the change on them we don't think oh maybe the society needs to widen mm. um, and my one of my sort of side interests if you like um for a long time has been like you know human evolution and, and history and prehistory um and i would argue that neuro difference and diversity is what sets us apart as a species anyway like the, the, the we've we've adapted to so many different environments we've seen things in different ways we've done things in different ways and we just happen to exist as you say at this time where it's a lot easier to sort of conform a certain type of behavior um, and kind of siphon people into that and if they don't fit within that we we go a bit about it a different way the speech and language thing is interesting as well because if i remember because i i trained not in speech and language but i did lots of um child development studies mm. um but again all based on typical neurotypical child development and there was this whole sort of emphasis on the need for communication that was for the sake of it experienced sharing communication um as this kind of really important part of development but i've spoken to a number of, of autistic people and i think molly sherwin came on the podcast and spoke to me about it she learned 
to read and write. I mean, she could, I think she could speak at that stage, but she learned a form of communication through playing computer games. So it mm-hmm. had a purpose. So it was kind of instrumental, but had purpose. Um, whereas a lot of, I guess, neurotypical communication is is based on just for the sake of it. It's that that's what you know. We're we're kind of um, we're communicate. I don't know how to describe it social focused communication yeah um and i guess that would influence the way that communication is taught in speech and language and it might even be taught to a a young autistic person that thinks well hang on why am i communicating if i don't need to you know well i guess that might be a a, yeah a difference i didn't ask you a question in that no 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 but you made a you made a really good point and it's actually made me think of a point um that when you look at autistic people through the eyes of monotropism um where you know where our neurology is set up for attention focus and um, you know we need to be interested in something to really engage with it and it's very hard then to take our attention from that thing because we're fully engaged with it if you look at that in a holistic sense around the sensory system then our sensory system is also monotropic which means that it's engaged with the thing that we're focused on and you can understand understand there from a speech and language perspective how there are communication differences. Because if you think of the traditional ways that autistic communication is described, you know, we monologue. Um, we're very bad at turn taking. And but actually what they're talking about is that we're bad at non-autistic, non-monotropic communication styles. Um, because monologuing, we have better terms for that info dumping or um uh i did think of a really good term for it the other day and i wrote, I wrote it down i haven't got it here um it was like i'm desperate to find a word you know that, that nobody else has done and that nobody else has come up with that describes things but um so when we are when you look at autistic people communicating it's mostly information exchange um it's either an info dump so it's a passing on of knowledge and then the other person receives that and either in passes their knowledge back or they just accept it and move on with it and there's actually a lot of of logic and information processing that goes on in natural autistic communication whether that's through text whether that's through sign whether that's through speech whatever but that's not how non-autistic people tend to communicate there isn't that the information exchange is there but it's in very very short bursts and it's wrapped up in all of this other social conformity and social language, which to an autistic person with monotropic neurology is utterly irrelevant. Because if you all of your senses and your brain processing is focused towards taking this information out of your head and passing it on to someone else, when you add in all the flowery language and all the distractions and all the other things, all that does is interrupt the flow of information exchange. And it sounds very robot-like and computer-like, and I hate analogies like that because that's something else that we've been tarred with for years, that, you know, we're emotionless and robot-like. But actually, it, it makes sense to me that there's a there's a reason that we communicate the way that we do. And, and you know, a conversation like this is suited to me very much because you ask a question or you have a stream of consciousness and you info dump to me, and then I do the same back to you. There's, there's, peri- there's long periods of us talking to each other and at each other rather than back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth because that back and forth I can't process because it happens too quickly there's too many subject changes it's they're all little micro transitions and they don't work with monotropic neurology so from a speech and language perspective if you've never been introduced to that concept 
the only concept that you have is the way that you communicate is the right way to communicate. And therefore, anybody that doesn't communicate like that, which is the majority, is in the wrong. So, you know, there's something wrong. There's something that needs to be changed or something that needs to be fixed. And again, it's an utterly inherently ableist way of looking at it. But if those tools aren't there, if someone doesn't understand or know about monotropic language and monotropic neurology, then they're just going to assume that this person is someone who needs help when in actual fact what they need is to stop being helped in inverted commas and be validated instead and actually said, you know, the way that you communicate is absolutely fine. It's just not the way that other people communicate. So where can we meet in the middle? And that's the difference. That's such a really, really nice way of, of summarizing it because that's that's something I've, I've been thinking about a lot in, in my work recently actually is is how you know how do I give support to someone in a way that is not um not assuming that their way of doing things is disordered and actually identifying that it's just different from the typical Mm-hmm. you know uh, the standard if you like but actually then they've got space to sort of choose so they know the standard way and they've got the space to do it their way um and i think you know the the, the way that you sum that up is is a really nice way of looking at it i i guess um it's interesting like because i'm I, I know you've got is it three children yeah i have yeah, yeah. so i'm recently a father uh only or two years in so you know things are getting interesting as they would do anyway at two years old um but i would find myself doing it the other day with the old please thing you know you get say please say please say please he's not saying please whether whether he's choosing to or not it's, it's not it's not happening for a bit um and then it made me realize that actually i'm not saying please to him that much about mm-hmm. stuff and and actually if if he says please because I've told him to say please, it's not kind of what I want anyway. That's not what the outcome is really. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the purpose of, of if you're gonna drill down manners, it's I don't know what it is. It's it's kind of you, the person's possibly more likely to do it for you, and they'll feel better about doing it. You know, that that's about it. Um, so with him, I'm just I'm thinking, well, I've got to just do it more. And, and let him know that that's what I do. Yeah. And if he doesn't want to do it that way, okay, you know, if that's not a, a hill that I'm going to hang my hat on, you know, that's not a, a huge thing. And I guess it, it was making, yeah, it was making me think about, I guess, speech and language, schools, social. I don't like that, you know, the social skills mm-hmm. idea. I mean, I, I joked once that we do need social skills training, but we need them for all the, other kids in school to be more accepting of the uh-huh. kids around them that's that to me that's better social skills you know accepting other people but you know um, it's not it's not even that though as much because kids are generally really really quite accepting it's only when they get they because children pick up on on what adults teach them a exactly, model yeah, which is what you exactly. just described there with your son you know it, it's kind of that do you want a child that says please and thank you because they genuinely mean it? Or do you want them to say please and thank you because that's what they've been told that they have to do? It's the meaning behind the please and thank you, which is important and not the please and thank you itself. And sometimes that can be expressed in other ways that that's about gratitude, isn't it? Um, And if you're, if you're asking a child to conform, 
in that particular way, what you're actually doing is withholding something that they've asked for until they've reciprocated in a way that you deem acceptable, which is asking them to beg, um, which is not the relationship that you want with your children, is it? You, you, no. you know, you, you want a relationship based on mutual respect and trust, not actually on a hierarchy of power and domination, which is, which is kind of what you do. I mean, that's, I know you're not dominating your children or anything, but you know, <laughs> it, it, it's a, you know, that, but that, that, that sub narrative is really there. And that's what we've been conditioned to think is the right way to parent and the right, right way to educate and the right way to act around other people that we have to have these systems of hierarchy and when you look amongst autistic people when they're together, those hierarchies don't tend to exist. It tends to be more parallel. And we see that in parallel play, that it's not about engaging and taking turns as such. It's about being alongside each other, doing our own independent thing, but having that level of communication and comfort with each other whilst we're doing our own thing as well. And it's, but yet again, that's something that's pathologized and told. But but the social skills thing, yeah, I have a I have a huge, huge issue with social skills training. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I certainly that's not something that I would uh, say that I, I do at all anymore. I mean, I guess even in the past, if if that was something I touched on, you know, I think this is why your 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 kind of paper and, and, and these ideas did kind of connect with me because it always felt a bit off it always felt a bit off kind of saying and I, I would I would learn things from sessions with young people I always remember this um she's about 11 she's an autistic young lady and she had been sent to me to do uh she wanted help with friendships which is always kind of my caveat you know if, if someone wants me to try and help them I'll, I'll, I'm up for that but you know otherwise it's um, what am I really doing there? Um, but she, so she came to the office and then we talked about, you know, starting conversations, blah, blah, blah. And we got on the subject of small talk and I used the whole weather thing. And like, you know, this is just an example of stuff that people talk about that oh, I don't think they really care about, but that's what they do. Um, and so we did this whole session back and forth and she got it, you know, she was really switched on and it, yeah okay yeah oh, tell me about the weather sam and she said i think at one point towards the end she said it in a way that i actually thought she really wanted to talk about the weather so really do you care no just got you so she really picked it up um and then at the end she just said thanks sam i, I get it i don't think i'm going to do it though i was like okay well that was a useful hour anyway but never mind I could, do you mind if i ask why and she said because Right now, I'm really into Minecraft, and if you're not interested in Minecraft, I don't know if I want to spend that time, you know, making a friendship. And I'm and I went, yeah, that's a fair point, like, you know, mm -hmm. because I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm autistic. I, I've had people comment about perhaps some neurodiversity there in uh, attention wise. Um, and it certainly would fit my school life path, but we won't yeah. go into that now. Um, but I, I don't think I can relate to that sort of that same um, autistic difference, if you like. But as you get older, you, you've always got friends that you've known for years, but like you kind of keep in contact with. But you don't really do any of the same things anymore, and it gets mm -hmm. a bit awkward. Yeah. And, and as you get older, you kind of get into things and you're like, well, you know, I want to be friends with people I can talk about those things with. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. But it, 
it just made it made me re sort of reevaluate my whole idea on well why is this the way to do things socially yeah. But it, especially the eye contact and things like that, it can be even more damaging the other <laughs> way, can't it? Yeah. You know? But I mean, on, on the kind of relationship level, the friendship level, I completely hear what you're saying. Because, I mean, if, if you take a, a child that's put into kind of mainstream education, they're plonked in a, ch- in a classroom full of, I don't know, 25 to 35 children and are told, these are your friends. And no, they're yeah. not. <laughs> they're just a room full of people that you forced me to go into, you know? And then you have to learn and you spend all day with those people. And that doesn't even then necessarily make them your friends. Some of one or two you might get on with because you have shared interests. And, and at the end of the day, a friendship is built around shared interest. And if you don't have those shared interests, it's very, very difficult to maintain unless you put in lots and lots and lots of effort. And then it, you kind of, is it, is there any real point to that relationship? Because, you know, if, if you're not mutually getting something beneficial from it, then, I don't know. Maybe that sounds a bit callous, but if uh, to my to my view that if I'm if I'm not able to give to my friends and my friends aren't able to give back, and that doesn't mean an equal thing all the time, then a relationship for me is really really hard to maintain, and I do question the point of it um, because it's lots of effort for no reward, and part of that reward is me being able to give as well as take back. So all my friends now are people. I have a a core group of friends that I talk to all the time. Some of them I've never met. They're on the other side of the world. Uh, One of my closest friends is in Australia and I talk to her every day. We work together online, delivering training and things like that. And we're having these constant, we have constant conversations and they're framed around our interests. And that does sometimes delve into kind of more personal stuff, but even the relationships that aren't in that core group, there are people that I know that, I can send an email to or drop a message to and pick up a conversation that started maybe that stopped maybe six months ago and just carry on where it left off. Or I know that I can go and ask for something or they know that they can come and ask me for something without having to go through that navigation of how are you, how's the family, how's this, how's that, how's the other, before you really get to the bit that you really want to do, which is ask them for something or they want to ask you for something, you know? So it's it for me, understanding myself and learning to understand myself more, particularly over the last kind of 10, 15 years has been so liberating in that respect because I had relationships with people where I constantly worried that I'd forgotten to get in touch with them or I was putting off going out with them or all of these kind of things. And to be liberated from that and recognize that my relationships are based based on now mutual respect and mutual need and mutual understanding of the situations that we're in. That I, all that fluff was gone and it, it's I'm so less tired because of it <laughs> and it's and that doesn't work for everyone obviously but for many autistic people when you start delving into their relationships either that's what they have or that's really what they want and they don't know how to get to that part well part and I guess part of the reason they maybe don't know how to get to it is because the support they would get in making friendships a bit like muggins here that said oh you want yeah. some oh you want some friendships let's master small talk mm-hmm. and actually now my approach would be and my what i recommend to parents is actually can you make any connections for you know with the young person and their interests you yeah. know because uh, you know you, you said that you mentioned about it being a bit callous but actually I, I don't think it is because i think it's more about where people feel comfortable and actually if you don't feel comfortable doing all the fluff, mm-hmm. 
then social situations that involve a lot of fluffing and that I'm going to snigger because there's another reason. <laughs> oh, I know what it means. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> They're always awkward, I'd imagine. But <laughs> sorry, um, or not, maybe. <laughs> well, yeah, what you take, yeah. Um, but that that those situations just you're going to be on edge. So you, and again, the the sort of the behavioural myth or the, the paradigm that gets put forward is prefer their own company or you know yeah. find these interactions difficult find social interactions difficult well no it's just the type of social interaction that we're defining as mm-hmm. um but actually within that kieran you did bring up something that i wanted to ask you about anyway so we'll rewind my waffle there okay. um when did you when did you um did you have you got an official diagnosis is it self-identification when did you go through that process um i yeah, have you tell me about it. yeah you know that's no, fine i have uh it's it's a public story it's not one that's a hidden or a surprise to anyone um anyone that knows me will have heard this before but um i was diagnosed when i was 23 um and that was after i mean that was 19 20 years ago now so that was after um my eldest nephew was diagnosed uh as autistic and adhd um about three or four years previous to that and um my mum his grandma became very very invested in autism and would stay up until the early hours of the morning to email Tony Atwood because she knew that he would be awake and stuff and ask him questions and things and she bought every book that she could possibly get her hands on and I was kind of I was there as his uncle and we had a very good relationship like me and him um but the autism side of things I've never really paid much attention to. He was just him for me um, until one day I just happened to pick up it was a Dr. Spock book. I've realized this recently. I've been, it's been racking my brains for years trying to remember what it was. Um, I don't know if you remember Dr. Spock, like the child psychologist, not the one from Star Trek. Oh, I, I, I was, <laughs> straight away was thinking Star Trek. Yeah, Star no, Trek, most people do. Uh, um, there was an actual Dr. Spock. Um, he was like wow. a developmental psychologist, <laughs> I think, um, and wrote books and things. And I just happened to pick it up and flick through it. And in the back was what was then the diagnostic criteria for autism, but broken down into kind of more palatable explanatory chunks. And it kind of, there was like a tick list thing there. And I was like going through and I was like, Oh, that sounds familiar. And that sounds familiar. And that sounds familiar. And then I handed it to my sister um, who'd come around for dinner. My oldest, I've got two sisters, my oldest. And she was very much like me and sort of ticked the same things. And my mom got really, really excited and was like, oh, more autism people to <laughs> to focus on. Um, that probably sounds familiar. Um, she didn't recognise it in herself. Um, but she, the Monday following Monday, she literally ran down to the GPs and made an appointment for both of us. And we got referred to um, Simon Baron Cohen's clinic and spent the day with Sir Professor Baron Cohen, the uh, problematic person. Um, wow, okay. Um, I did not know at the time was problematic, and I had a lovely day with him. This is actually a very, you know, uh, uh, he's a nice person to spend time with. Okay. Um, and it wasn't until later on that I found out all of the other problematic stuff. But, um, but no, we spent the day with him, and I came out with a diagnosis and then didn't know what to do with it because there weren't any other autistic adults in the world apart from Dustin Hoffman and Temple Grandin, <laughs> who were not good role models um, for me at least. So, so yeah, so I parked it for a long time and then um, 
when my eldest son was born, uh, I was left in the maternity suite with him for several hours when my wife got rushed to theatre and holding this newborn baby and at ah, ah, three o'clock in the morning, don't know what to do with you. And he didn't cry for two hours. He just stared at me, like bored a hole in my skull. And I knew he was exactly like me. And I knew at that point I need to figure myself out because I don't know how to support you and I need to know how to support you. And so that led me on the trajectory that brought me here with you today. Right. Well, um, if anyone hasn't heard that story before, which I hadn't, that's a, thank you for sharing. That's a really powerful story. I think Um, it (laughs) now, it was a very powerful story, but the thing that stuck out, stuck out a little bit was that I did not realise that you had had your diagnosis with a uh, particular Baron Cohen, not the Ali G one. Um, and really, I guess, really current topic, which I know yeah. you've been you know, quite involved in recently. I, I spoke um, to Chloe about it at the time uh, and posted a few things, but again, you know, it's, I'm not autistic, so I try not to get too at the. I think it's really important that we let autistic people take the lead for mm-hmm. for that advocacy and kind of be in their, I guess, be on their shoulders. If, if yeah, you know, if, if there's if there's a metaphor for it, um, not literally on their shoulders. That would be sort of weighing them down, but you know, <laughs> just behind <laughs> slightly, <laughs> like a motorcycle display team or yeah, something. <laughs> yeah, really unhelpful when they're, they're trying to do something. Just sat on their shoulders. I'm here. <laughs> um, but there was lots of of stuff about some of the like I like the word you're using, problematic stuff that mm. um, Mr. Baron Cohen has been responsible for. Doctor Baron, is he doctor? I don't. I'm not the most. He's Sir Professor now. Sir Professor. Sir Professor. Oh, okay. no, I'm not doing that. He can be no, I don't either. Simon. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm sure he won't <laughs> listen. And if he does, he's got a right to reply. So come mm-hmm. on. But um, those problematic things. Do you think they come from a? This is a big question. Do you think they come from a right intent, wrong information place, or something a little more sinister? Um, you don't have to answer if it's too controversial. No, 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 no. The one thing, Sam, I am is very, very honest with my thoughts and feelings. <laughs> I don't want to get. You, I don't want to abuse that honesty and get into. No, trouble. no, 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 no. Not at all. It's that I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say anything to you or to any of your listeners um, that I wouldn't write on my own website or say in public anyway, um, and not in an, uh, an abusive kind of trolley way. Uh, I like to think I have informed uh, criticism of people. Yeah, <laughs> um, but. It's interesting. I mean, what we're really talking about is kind of the myths around empathy and extreme male brain and and those Lack kind of, of things. theory of mind, theory of mind, and and yeah, those kind of things. Um, I think partly it stems through historically, it stems through a lack of being informed. Um, when you go back to even Hans Asperger's work, 
there's leanings towards and implicate and kind of intentions towards people, autistic people lacking theory of mind. Um, so there's a historical kind of route for it, um, which was then further reinforced by Uta Thrift, who's another autism researcher who kind triangle. of slightly predated uh, Baron Cohen um, with her wonderful moving triangles <laughs> um, and lots of other horrible uh, things that may have come out of her. Um, but Obviously, she was very invested in Asperger's. She translated his work, and that's where a lot of her information came from, from him. And then Baron Cohen worked under Uta Thrift. And so, you know, you you can see a a natural progression of things. And I very much like to talk about the the autism narrative that we hold in the world today as being one built on a foundation of sand, Um, because those early observations were very flawed and very biased and there were aspects of racism and ableism and sexism and all those things kind of engrounded in it as a sign of the times then obviously you know whether or whether he was not a nazi he was living under nazi germany under nazi regime so that's going to have and also was taught by victorian psychologists and all of that's there you know so so all of all of those kind of narratives are there along with the eugenics and things um when it comes to Simon himself, he's a person that confuses me greatly um, because I always get confused by people who don't take on new information and accept that things that they did in the past were wrong. Um, Simon's very good at taking new information and twisting it and manipulating it and inserting it into his own narrative um, you know, he's, he talks about neurodiversity all the time and clearly does not understand the entire concept of neurodiversity. It's neurodiver- what we would call neurodiversity light, where it's a kind of, you know, there are aspects of certain people which are useful and there are aspects of that certain people that are not. And then when you look at that through the lens of Uta Thrift and the spectrum, which again came from Asperger, you have you know, some people at one end of this line of a spectrum are not useful when some people at the other end are useful. So you can see all those narratives woven into his thinking. And I don't even think that he would accept it. But even recently when talking, I mean, Spectrum 10K is really what we're talking about. Talking about when you see his defenses of Spectrum 10K and the interviews that he's done, he talks about useful people people who are good at maths people who are good at science and then he talks about well we need to investigate these other things which are causing harm and really what he's talking about there is there is one group of people which he would like to keep i think and there is another group of people which he wouldn't like to keep and i don't think he would ever come out and say that implicitly but the subcontext is there, which is, that's what I read into it, you know, but then I'm autistic and I'm not supposed to be able to read subcontext. Um, I can't read between the lines. I just have to read what's written on the paper. Um, but, you know, it's very much there for me. And um, Simon's a huge part of a problematic narrative, which, and it's going to sound drastic, has caused the death of a lot of people. People have been missed. People have not had the support that they should have had. And I'm talking about, autistic women and girls i'm talking about um autistic people who present atypically from the diagnostic criteria because of his uh putting out into the world around lack of empathy and lack of theory of mind and the extreme male brain and all of that has gone has meant that more people than necessary have been missed in getting recognized and getting support 
And I know for a fact that people have taken their lives. And I know for a fact that people have died through ill health and barriers to healthcare because of those reasons. So that's not to say he is directly responsible for deaths, but I would certainly go as far to say that he has blood on his hands. And that sounds like a really dramatic thing to say, but when you start picking apart the narratives around him, which I have done for a very long time, because my recollection of this man that I spent a day with, and then later on understanding the things that he has done and the things that he has said and contributed to, those two things don't correlate. And I've spent the last kind of 20 years trying to figure that out. Mm. And it's hugely, hugely alarming to me that somebody has that level of power and control over narratives and influence over academia and has fear in autistic researchers who won't come out and who won't publish certain things or won't come out and say things because they know that there's going to be repercussions and because of those narratives around it. And it it terrifies me that somebody has that level of control and power and influence over me and my children and my wife and, you know, all these narratives that are around us that are impacting us negatively. And one person has an awful lot of control over that. And scares me that's probably far more than you wanted or asked for (laughs) um yes and no i mean i wasn't expecting as much but actually it's going to be really handy to have quite a a marketable podcast title of simon baron cohen has blood on his hands (laughs) no i won't do that i won't do that um but i get your point you know like that yeah it's really important to highlight some of the i think we don't even i don't even think we know the full extent of some of the damage of some of these negative messages and like you say misdiagnosis and misunderstanding of support and it it, it's it's one of those things at the moment i mean i'm not trying to put a positive spin on things by any means but i i feel like that we're at this point where we're starting to sort of lift the curtain, if you like, and see, mm-hmm. oh, actually, here's what's maybe going on, um, which makes it look awful, but is actually the first step towards some of those changes and, and some of those ideas coming through that are not going to, to have the, those damaging effects. I yeah, guess. I mean, I, I agree completely. And I think... um Again, not to put a positive spin on it, but I think there have been Spectrum 10K's existence has been good in a number of ways because not only has it rallied an online community, at least, that I think has been quite punch drunk for a couple of years um, and has really felt the pressure of kind of advocacy and um, the horrors that we have to deal with day to day. And, And that, again, sounds dramatic, but, you know, when you are seeing research papers coming out talking about um giving autistic children um antipsychotics to make them more sociable when you're talking when you're seeing research papers coming out left right and center about behavioral confirmation and the horrible things that children are subjected to and when you see autistic people you know the rates of autistic people in terms of suicide and and mental ill health and all those kind of things when you are in the world and your the scales aren't on your eyes and you're seeing this every day it's really really traumatizing so the community i think has been online community has been quite worn by that over the last couple of years and this is something that we've that's really rallied people and it's really got i mean the fact that the fact that it was even paused 
is enormous. Mm. But the study is paused because of the antics, as they have been described by some people, of autistic people. You know, how dare we speak up and, and say what we think and do these things. And But the fact that a three million pound study by one of the most prominent people in the autism narrative in the world has been paused because we've shouted loud enough to make that happen. That's a huge thing. So, so yeah, that lifting of the curtain, I think, is important for more and more people to see and understand horrors that some of us see every day. And the not just seeing stuff as well, the, the, the things that you do, you know, the picking up the pieces, the, the having to support families who are in struggling and children who are struggling and adults that are struggling, things that both of us do on a day-to-day basis and who are struggling not because they're autistic, they're struggling because of the narratives around autistic people, which need to be exposed and they need to be seen more. And it's it's utterly imperative that that happens. So given that, just going to going back to the the masking research, I was I was interested in what what that actually involved. Did you how many people did you speak to, or did you what what was the actual sort of meat and bones of that research paper? How did you get those? Um, well, it was it was something that was very personal to myself and Amy Pearson, who's the other author. Yep. Um, we met about uh, four years ago and just we lived locally to each other and had never met and just we talked to each other on Twitter and met for coffee for the first time and ended up pretty much staying all day in the coffee shop and just talking and talking and talking and talking got on really well. And masking is something which for both of us, I mean, it was something that I've been writing about already um, and was very personal to me, obviously, because it's something that I had engaged in and is still a big part of my life. Um and both of us were struggling with where this mainstream narrative of the way that it's been described in research up until recently is that, you know, autistic person walks into a room, pops their mask on, navigates it socially, cheeky, chappy, happy, and then takes it off again at the end and then goes back to being autistic again. Um, and that didn't sit right with either of us. So the mechanics of that were that this was not a research paper where we went out and interviewed lots of people, but both of us in our different worlds and lives have done that. So Amy has published papers on masking before and um, on stigma and interpersonal kind of victimization and violence and stuff like that. And the work that I'd previously done on masking had involved lots of research and supporting people who were masking and whose mask had kind of cracked and stuff like that. So this conceptualization was built on not, a singular group of questions and asking of people, but lots of bodies of work. Um, but also the wider recognition, and this is where it became really, really interesting for me, was that, you know, we were surrounded by these narratives all the time. When you look at um, gay people have been talking about the closet for years and coming out of the closet and um, black people have been talking about passing for years and so on. You know, when you look at marginalized groups, each marginalized groups has their masking narrative. So when, um, when you, when you, when you go into academia, it's really interesting because academics never talk to anyone outside of their own field and there's never cross research or anything like that. So Amy's a psychologist, developmental psychologist. And what we recognized was that sociology has been talking about masking for decades, nearly a century. Um, but psychology hasn't, 
picked up on that. Um, so we cross-referenced everything. And what re- the one thing that really, really, really struck me was um, back at the beginning of the 20th century, there was a black sociologist uh, living in the United States who did lots of work on uh, black people being marginalised under white oppression, uh, a man called William Du Bois. And he spoke about and wrote about something which he defined as the double consciousness, um, which is where a black person over time would project a second conscious version of themselves. Um, you know, and that second conscious version would be the one which would dominate and dictate, but it would effectively be a white version of a black person. So some, uh, so they would behave differently around white people would do things differently about white people. And, and that became the kind of dominant force. And when I went back and looked at my own writing without using that term, I'd been writing exactly the same stuff, but about being autistic. And that's not to compare autistic experience to black experience, because obviously they are very, very vastly different. And racism is a very different conversation with similar roots, but the mechanisms and response to that marginalization and those different traumas was very, very similar to what he described. And it, it was a, uh, so yeah, so it's it's not to answer your question. It wasn't built on going out and asking a group of people a bunch of questions. It was built on this huge body of not only our own work but the work of other people as well and other people's research. So bringing all that combined together, which is really I think important, particularly amongst the autism narrative, because we look at autistic people as in a vacuum. But there's massive intersection amongst autism, autistic people uh, in terms of race, disability. You know, anybody could be autistic, um, but that's not recognized at the moment. You know, there, there's huge under recognition in the black communities in uh, people of color. There's huge lack of recognition amongst other disabilities. There's I mean, even like you said yourself around uh, potentially having attention differences. ADHD is usually has now been inserted in that uh, gauntlet that people go through before they get an autism diagnosis. You know, it's another step now that's been added in along the way, and um, there's huge crossover between the two. So it, it, it was even, it's still even used as a reason why they don't get the the diagnosis, the autism diagnosis. Yeah, exactly, and particularly so for black people because uh, yeah. for black people there's a, a narrative around kind of behaviour. And, you know, so there's a lot more oppositional defiance disorder diagnoses and ADHD and stuff like that. And nobody, autism is excluded. So, <clears throat> so, you know, I am really waffling now. I'm going off on a real tangent, but, it, no, it, but it's all part of that same waffling. thing. It's good. It's all, it's all part of that same question as to coming back as, you know, we didn't focus on a group of people because the, all the work was already there. Mm. It was just, it hadn't been interpreted in the right way and seen through the right lenses. And that's really what we wanted to do with this. Now, here's a, here's a difficult one then. What three, you don't have to do three, but three's a nice number. What, what three like practical that. changes in mainstream school could you make to reduce masking? <laughs> there you go nice easy one boom we, we sort that one out people want answers <clears throat> i'm assuming that a bulldozer is not allowed to be involved <laughs> <laughs> no well if, if if there's something in its place i guess if, <clears throat> if we're saying bulldozing all the buildings then yeah that could be involved uh, more bulldozing the education system <laughs> well that's, yeah that's kind of what i'm saying and that could include systemic changes to be yeah, fair yeah no it, it does need to be systemic change and i think um 
it's really interesting. There's, there's an article in the Guardian that came out today um, uh, that was around kind of um, lessons learned from lockdown for the education system and actually recognising do we need classrooms anymore and do we need timetables because people learn very, very differently. And it was about um, we are living in a technological age at the moment and at the moment the education system is set up to compete against technology and not use it because we're trying to hold information within ourselves which is already there in the technology so it's about uh they wanted more focus on creativity and releasing ourselves from the bonds of information and actually encouraging people to use information rather than just learn information um which i think you know, really, really has its place and is a really should be an important part of things. And it isn't at the moment. So if I was going to make systemic changes, when you look at models like Montessori and Chelmsford schools and, and those kind of things, they are set up for creativity and they are more set up, not to say they don't have their problems because they do, but they're more set up for monotropic learning. Um, if you are an autistic person and you have monotropic neurology and you go into a school not only are you changing subjects every 45 minutes to an hour which is a doesn't work for monotropic neurology at all because you need to engage in you need to your brain to click in what you're interested in in a certain topic and then that's your into that topic but that involves building up inertia and then once you've got that inertia built up then you have to stop that one and move on to a next topic and you know which doesn't work for us um so I think there needs to be systemic change in understanding that there is huge diversity in learning amongst children and being in four square walls in a room with 30 kids being taught rote information and half of it is completely irrelevant. If I look at the national curriculum and, um, you know, the way that kids are taught English now and, and there's no fun or joy or creativity any, anymore. It's all about rules and rote and repetition Um if we remove that structure and bring in teachers who are not teaching, but teachers who are curators, who are curators of learning, who recognize that and are supported to recognize that individual people need to latch on to certain things and learn through that, then I think that's a much better education system. But that is drastic change. That's literally ripping the whole thing apart. And I don't think that's going to happen in the near future, but it's difficult for me to talk about changes because anything's going to be a micro change in the current education system and it's not going to make a great deal of difference and that's the problem no i mean i love i love the idea i'm totally on board with those curriculum ideas it baffles me that to one of my again you know i've loved history since probably getting on for five to ten years now but never i dropped it as soon as i could at school and it just baffles me that there's even a set of history you have to learn. Surely, mm. the, why could we not teach kids or, you know, explore with kids ways of learning, test them on their ability to learn rather than the thing they have to learn? You know, but like you said, that's a big old systemic change. Maybe, maybe that would be fantastic. It, I mean, my um, my uh, my Netflix uh, watch list is a very, very good example of how autistic people learn, because uh, the things that I want to watch, you know, like the things that I haven't watched yet, because sometimes I'll sit there and I'll just scroll through it and scroll through it and scroll through it and scroll through it. And there's nothing in there. And I want to watch all those things, 
but my brain has to pick up an interest in one of those things. And it has to be the right moment at the right time for my brain to go, yes, that's the thing you need to watch. And that's why I end up watching the same things over and over again half the time, because my brain's not in a place to pick up on that one thing. It's not the the environment isn't quite right or my emotional state isn't quite right to be ready to start watching a pro. It sounds really bizarre, but, you know, but that's 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 how monotropic brains work. We need something. There's a hook. And there's a hook in every subject, no matter what that subject is, there will be a hook, but it's allowing the child to find that hook and giving the time and space to make that choice and be in the right kind of place to go, actually, yes, this is the thing that I want to do. Once I'm in it, it's okay because I can explore. But you can't do that at school. That's not how schools are set up. They're not set up for exploring topics. And so, you know, there's been thematic learning has been dipped in and dipped out of over the years over the last kind of 20 30 years and they're more thematic learning is more set up from monotropic neurology because you know every subject's framed around the same topic mm. so you get an opportunity to kind of explore through different mediums and you know even maths and art and science and english and all those different things but there's still the problem that the child hasn't been given the choice in what they learn what the what they want to learn and if you're monotropic, you're autodidactic, and you need to self- learn through self-led learning, then it's just it's just going to fail you completely. What about the more? So obviously, there, there's that, I guess, conformity to an education system that doesn't suit your learning style. So that could lead to a, I guess, a masking of of learning. But what about the more kind of social, I guess, traumas, if you like? Are you aware of anything in particular or a key thing that people appear to be experiencing that are all, is almost behind the masking? I mean, you mentioned being marginalised, and I guess yeah. seen as different might be one of those things. But I think one of the biggest problems is that, I mean, again, there's context to this as well, because teachers aren't funded or supported or trained well enough you know those things aren't happening and that's that's very clear and any any teacher worth their salt will tell you that they those three things do not happen um so they're not equipped to be able to support lots of different children under their care efficiently like well enough basically um but one of the biggest things actually is goes back to what we were talking about earlier around kind of socialization and the expectations around that and behavior are the two biggest thing. I mean, sensory stuff's always going to be in there. Um, you know, you put anyone in an environment where there's a huge number of people and all doing different things and display on the walls and all those things, there, there's always going to be a, a negative sensory aspect and element to that. But when you are regulated emotionally, you are better equipped to deal with the sensory dysregulation. And if you are in an environment where your communication is being invalidated, where your behavioral needs are being invalidated, where your movement and physical needs are being invalidated, you're not going to be equipped to deal with the sensory side of things either. And it's just going to have, the two are just going to have an impact on each other. So I think the biggest things that people talk about, and from my own experience as well, is that level of invalidation where it's not it gets to a point where it's not even the invalidation itself it's that you just set yourself up to expect to be invalidated so 
your historical kind of micro traumas that have been delivered to you over the course of your socialization development um cause you to realize that no matter what situation you're going to go into you can't be you because it's unsafe you don't have that choice anymore and this is all unconscious obviously but and with the conscious elements to it so going back to kind of the social skills kind of things that at the moment the only people that are put through social skills training are children uh, autistic children um when you it's so common when you go and observe a kind of classroom where there's a, a known autistic child in there the autistic child is held to higher expectations of behavior and conformity than any other child in that classroom they're expected you know you see a group of you see a class of children lining up in a corridor the autistic child will usually be the one at the front, usually with a learning support assistant standing next to them, usually having their behavior corrected and being told they have to stand still and arms, arms behind your back or stand up straight. And the whole rest of the line is disrupting and talking and chatting and moving. But then that one child is the one who's being modulated constantly. Um, and that's, that's not me having a go at TAs and it's not me having a go at teachers. I used, you know, I was an HLTA for over a decade. So, I've seen this and I've seen this in my professional capacity now all the time. So if you can remove that level of expectation and what you said earlier about, it's not the autistic kids that need the social skills training, it's everybody else because we never look at autism for a cultural lens. And what we really have going on is if you, if you look at the autistic community, this is going to sound like a tangent, but it isn't, it's really relevant. If you look at the autistic community as a whole, and you draw back and you start looking at it through a lens of culture, there are markings of developing culture amongst the autistic community. So uh, think all the things that make a culture, the autistic community is starting to have. And that's because we're spending time together and we're connecting together and, and that growth is there. But all those things are innately in each of us as well, the way that we communicate um our own kind of social actions um our creativity and what the framework around the things that we create and our writing and our literature and our, our poetry and songs and art and the food that we eat all those things are, are cultural markers and they're all there so if you took you and dumped you in china and you didn't speak a word of mandarin or whatever chinese dialects and and you were just expected to get on now, over time, you would learn how to speak and live and act as Chinese people do. But there would never be an expectation that you would stop being Sam and you would leave behind all of the cultural stuff you'd learned up until that point. You can go back to that and there'll be a mix and a merging of the two. But for autistic children and autistic young people, the expectation is that you take all of your innate cultural being you screw it up and toss it out of the window and you act as that other culture constantly. You're not allowed to go back to who you were and you're not allowed to allow a blending of two. And that's the problem. And then that's the bit, that's the one fundamental thing that needs to change is the recognition that autistic people are innately and naturally autistic and what that means. So at the moment, that's not there. That teaching and that understanding isn't there because at the moment, the expectation is that there is a person there who is with autism, who has this thing wrong with them. And if we work a little bit harder, we can teach them how to be like everybody else. That's yeah. the bit that needs to change. I love that language analogy because it's like the, it's like the English abroad syndrome, which mm. I don't 
you know, I'm, I, I like to try. I like to, if I go abroad, I like to try and learn the basics of a foreign language and make an effort. And most of the time, people do speak a bit of English too. So you meet in the middle. And if I get really stuck, I do that English thing where, or maybe it's not an English thing, it's just a me thing where I say it in perfect English, but with a bit of an accent, do it <laughs> in the hope that they'll understand more, which yeah. doesn't work. Um, but it's almost like it's like going into going into say France, oh, and they don't even speak bloody English. Yeah, and, and that kind of like you say that kind of perception that oh, no, 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 your way is wrong. You better learn this way. And it's almost about to move forward. We need to find ways to address ourselves as the non-autistic person and say the autistic perspective has equal has a value is it as a it's not just about it's of equal value yeah yeah it's of equal yeah. value it's not just my way is better so you better learn my way it's okay well why do you want to do it your way and what's the benefits of my mm -hmm. way and how can i help you understand that and then you get a choice to an extent and i do accept you know that there are counter arguments that you know okay well you 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 can't just let kids run around and do whatever they want in a school you know th those are the kind of counters you get but ultimately, you also, you know, you need to be questioning these things that have been in place and based on structures that have existed for like 40 odd years. I mean, the, the, the one I talk about quite a lot is um, desk fidgets. You know, we, we know. And again, it's, it's a generalization. It's not going to help every child and it might be quite distracting for some children, young people. But having some sensory input with them that helps them feel calm and regulate it could be really useful for loads of kids i've worked with if you're an adult and you've got a desk there's a whole market of bloody fidget I, i've mm. had them all i've had the little mini stonehenge the zen garden that mm -hmm. you can do it's just fine you know imagine working if you worked in an office where you went to the loo and you came back and you thought oh god i've had you know dodgy curry last night i'm going again Imagine if your boss was like, uh, you've had your toilet break for this lesson. You know, this, <laughs> yeah, like, you're not allowed to go now. This is an HR issue. Do one. Uh -huh. You know, we just, we hold kids to standards that, that we I don't, don't think we ourselves. can't, yeah, we can't yeah. maintain ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. I mean, even like, I was talking to a parent earlier this morning and she said, oh, you know, he, her child has struggled since going to mainstream. Um, it's quite a small mainstream. And then she sort of caught herself and went, still 800 people. As an adult coming out of lockdown, who's, again, I don't think in any way, you know, I don't think I'm autistic because um, I'm quite sociable usually. But the thought of having to go somewhere five days a week with 800 people in, it's just like, oh, God, that's going to be horrific. It's just yeah. going to be hard work as much as anything. Yeah. And yet, so again, we, I, I don't know if we've got to the bottom of any specifics. M one that I quite often <clears> talk about is stims for all. If you, you want to bring something in that makes you feel more comfortable, do it. Yeah, you know, if you're going to learn better, great. Um, the, thing, the thing is, though, Sam, it's it's not even changing things for autistic children because when you start looking through that lens of reasonable adjustments and and things like stimming and stuff like that and enabling those things, actually, these are the things that benefit everybody. They don't just benefit the autistic children. And there's, I mean, if you brought stimming into a, into the, the school or the classroom and, and you said, you know, stim how you need to stim, 
Um, but we need to navigate how that impacts on other people. But obviously, but you know, there needs to be an element of free reign. We're not going to have anarchy. Um, yeah. Children aren't going to be stimming all over the place and not doing anything. You know, that's not how it works. But that fear is there of how it works. But if you bring those things in, not only does it normalize it, so the autistic person is more able to feel like that they can naturally just do what comes naturally to them, but also there's that level of everybody stims but we think that it's only a thing that autistic people do. And it, it, it's, 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 again, it's that, that normalization of things. And I think, you know, if that was that, that, that's the bit that needs to be normalization is that word. It's normalizing in the right way. So it's recognizing that different people do things differently. And actually sometimes that can benefit everybody. And if we can start bringing that kind of attitude and mentality into education, then that's going to make life a lot easier for a lot of people. And, um, Kieran, we've done over an, over an hour. I try and keep them to an hour, but I would love in the future to get you back on because I feel like I could talk to you for hours on end. But you know, probably benefit me more than more than anyone else. So, <laughs> uh, um, but thank you so much for for agreeing to come on. We do have a small and growing following, so you know, I'd like to give you the opportunity at the end to to let anyone listening um, that hasn't heard of you before know where to find you. Um, what kind of things you're working on at the moment and you know anything that you want to kind of promote you know please feel free to do so okay the floor is yours okay um well most of my work is available at www.theautisticadvocate.com um if i started listing all the different things that i'm doing <laughs> we would be here all day um but the biggest I tried, the, the biggest why i tried to pass it over to you <laughs> <laughs> um the biggest thing at the minute is um my big online training um it runs publicly three or four times a year um i have a massive waiting list to get on it um and it's basically <laughs> six hours of training but 14 hours of support at least um around reframing the autism narrative and helping people understand things from the autistic perspective and really smashing a lot of those myths out there and and putting new things in their place and giving people new tools so what we were talking about earlier you know you can only work the tools you have to hand here's some new ones um so it's really much about that and it's 40 pounds a person so um for 14 hours of support so i try to keep it really low price to help you know, make it accessible for everyone, but you can find that on my website anyway. So, but yeah, there, there, there's so much up there. There's like my blog and all sorts of things up there. So lots of, lots of good resources that are free. Fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much. Um, and thank you to everybody listening. Uh, if you've enjoyed the episode, comments, reviews, good reviews, not terrible reviews, terrible reviews, just keep it to yourself. That's, you know, that's what my nan used to say. If you, if you haven't got a nice word to say, don't say anything. Um, <laughs> but I don't necessarily agree with that anymore. Uh, but yeah, uh, nice reviews, um, comments, likes, shares, all really, really help. And if you need to get hold of me about the podcast, uh, maybe as a potential guest or again with feedback, it's uh, neurodivetraining at gmail.com. Um, and yeah you can email me about other stuff which i won't go on about here we've got lots of webinars training courses things like that running um like the facebook page and, and you'll be kept up to speed thanks again kieran and thank you everybody it's been a pleasure thank you